welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. As Paul Manafort's trial is scheduled to begin Monday after a week delay, here's President Trump speaking about his former campaign manager with Fox News' Sean Hannity last week. Paul Manafort, who's, who really is a nice man, you look at what's going on with him, it, it's like Al Capone. 2005 tax case. Or a case that I guess hours. is very old. It, it's just a sad thing. It's a very sad thing for our country to see this. Joining us is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, head of the Criminal Investigations and White Collar Practice at McCarter in English. Bob, I don't know whether comparing someone to a gangster evokes much sympathy, but is the case against Manafort for tax and bank fraud similar to the case against Capone for tax evasion? Well, June, I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, in this case, Manafort is accused of making tens of millions of dollars while working for former pro-Russia Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych and his party, and then concealing those earnings and the offshore bank accounts that held them from U.S. authorities. And he's also charged with misleading lenders about his finances to induce them to make $20 million in loans to him. So I think what we're going to see in this this case is a is a case that is very heavy in terms of documents, and it's really going to be a follow the documents, follow the money type of prosecution. The prosecutors have listed more than 400 exhibits for trial, but they appear to be trying to ensure that it's not just going to be a boring trial of bank records and business contracts and tax returns. Tell us about some of the things they have in mind. Well, any good prosecution has to involve a narrative. It's not simply getting up there and reeling off a series of documents and asking the jurors to connect the dots themselves. So I think what we can expect here is that prosecutors are going to paint this tale of Manafort making tens of millions of dollars as this unregistered agent for Ukraine, then steering the money into these offshore accounts in countries around the globe, then using that money to buy houses, cars, expensive clothing and jewelry, and ultimately lying to U.S. authorities and to banks about what he earned with his wealth. It's basically a case that involves tax evasion and bank fraud, and part of that case will allow prosecutors to show photographs of houses and jewelry, uh, expensive renovations that were done on various properties that Manafort owned out in the Hamptons and in Brooklyn and in other locations. And so he, they're going to show not only how he earned his money, how he concealed the money, but then ultimately that he used that money for his own personal benefit to show that he, in fact, owned the money and he controlled it and he should have reported on his taxes but failed to do so. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Well, in light of all the evidence that prosecutors seem to have, what kind of defense might Manafort put up? Well, Manafort has an experienced legal team and he apparently has the financial wherewithal to attack the government's case because he's done so very aggressively so far. So I think we can expect to see prosecutors, uh, I'm sorry, expect that we can expect to see his defense lawyers going after the government's case in a, in a very aggressive way, continuing on the path that they've already started here, which will mean really attacking the key points in the government's case, which is Manafort's state of mind, 
the government's uh, requirement that they show that he controlled those offshore accounts and his history of offshore income. Part of the government's case is going to be a reliance on his one-time right-hand man, Rick Gates, and some of those accounts were set up by Gates. The government's going to argue that Manafort was aware that those accounts were set up and that he benefited from those accounts, but clearly the defense is going to attack Gates' credibility, and the defense has at least something to work with because Gates, in pleading guilty, acknowledged that he failed to report uh, income, that he used $3 million from offshore accounts for his own mortgages and his children's tuition and interior decorating, and Gates was, uh, without without any doubt, central to this case. He opened up 55 accounts, allegedly, with 13 financial institutions over a dozen years. So the defense is going to have some opportunity to attack Gates' credibility, and in doing so, try to distance their client from these crimes and show that he did not have the state of mind to conceal these assets from the government and was not guilty of the charges that the government has brought against him. Bob, I want to ask you about one thing, which is the prosecutors gave Manafort's lawyers 120,000 documents this month, and that's why the judge granted the defense request to push back the trial a week. The prosecutor said the late handover of documents wouldn't affect Manafort's defense because the only new material was photographs and images. Is that late timing suspicious in any way as sort of game-playing? Well, I don't really think it's suspicious because it's not unusual for the government to continue to be investigating uh, right up to the day of trial. But I also think that it was quite predictable that the judge is going to give some additional time because merely because prosecutors are saying that this evidence is not relevant um, doesn't mean that it might not be relevant to the defense. The defense certainly doesn't have to take prosecutors' words for it, that there could not be some exculpatory information in those documents. And uh, a good defense lawyer is going to be familiar with all the documents that they have in their possession uh, through discovery. So what the judge did here is split the baby, in a sense, because the defense had asked for a longer adjournment, trying to push this trial back beyond the other trial that's scheduled in September. The judge refused to do that, but he did give them an extra week to go through these documents that they just received within the last month. Only about a minute here, Bob, but this will be the first court test for the special counsel's team. So even though it's on bank fraud and tax charges, how important is the result to the special counsel? It's enormously important. I can't imagine a case where the stakes are higher. Uh, Obviously, the credibility of this investigation has been attacked uh, by the president. It's been attacked by other people in Congress and other uh, interest groups. Um, Robert Mueller has to show that he is doing his job, that this is not uh, simply a fishing expedition. And so uh, it's absolutely critically important uh, for the credibility of this special counsel investigation that they make some of these charges stick. And it's going to be the defense's job to try to make sure that doesn't happen. All right, Bob, thanks so much. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Last Friday, MGM Resorts sued the victims of the shooting at its Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas in October using an anti-terrorism law that could wipe out its liability for what was the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. It didn't take long for the hashtag BoycottMGMResorts to appear on Twitter. Catherine Lombardo, a lawyer for some of the shooting victims, says the lawsuit is a trick. This was not a terrorist attack. This was negligence on on behalf of MGM. They're trying to hide behind the Safety Act. 
Joining me is Thomas Russell, a professor at the Strum College of Law at the University of Denver. Thomas, many, tell us about the law MGM is basing its lawsuit on called the Support Anti-Terrorism by Fostering Technologies Act or the Safety Act. Um, first, thanks for having me on, and I, I do have to correct you. It's Sturm College of Law, not Strum, and we get that all the time, but uh, I just, I'm honor-bound to make that correction. Um, so this act is an act, in that, you know, put in place by Congress about 15 years ago. Um, it bears uh, sort of elements of anti-terrorism and also elements of tort reform and kind of combines both of those together and makes it more uh, more difficult to sue someone who has um, hired somebody who's deployed a technology that is supposed to be an anti-terrorism technology. Um, And so the claim um, by MGM is that they should be able to shift liability from themselves or more likely from their insurers to the insurance company for Contemporary Services Corporation, which did the security work on the ground uh, below the Mandalay Bay Hotel. So this is the first time, I believe, that this law is being used, so there's no precedent to follow, but there do seem to be some hurdles. One being that perhaps a security company was protected under the law, but MGM hasn't gone through the process that the firm did to get certification under the Act. Well, I actually think that my reading, again, as you say, it's correct that there hasn't been adjudication under this statute. So, in fact, we don't really know what it means, and it will take some some time before we figure that out. Um, My reading of the statute and the related regulations are that the company creates a technology, which can include maybe a service, too, that is designed to prevent some form of mass attack, And then when uh, another entity hires that company, the liability, should something go wrong, shifts to the the entity providing the the technology, the anti-terrorism technology. So there are a set of steps of approval through the Department of Homeland Security that the that the security company would have gone through. Um, It's a little less clear to me exactly what MGM would have gone through. An important thing to note here is that there's a lot of loss, of course, from injuries, death, from emotional harm, everything else. One of the things that the statute does is narrows the the amount of money that can be recovered for a variety of things. The act eliminates punitive damages, for example. It narrows the recovery of economic harm for emotional loss. Um, It it narrows, uh, it eliminates something related to health insurance, essentially, is what it does. Um, and, and at the same time, the act limits the recovery to the total amount of insurance that the security contractor has. So it's so significant. The goal... Yeah, go ahead. So um, now, they're asking for the court to declare the company isn't liable at all. Um, it is there any problem with the victims' claims that MGM was negligent and that there were red flags about the shooter that the hotel should have picked up on, such as piling up weapons in his room, where the hotel hired the security company for the concert itself? So I'm not sure if any of that crosses. 
Well, I agree with you there, and I'd need to see more of the pleadings and some of the lawsuits that were filed and then subsequently withdrawn. But to simplify, I can conceive of an activity on the ground, and there may have been negligence in relationship to that and to the the music festival, and then separately negligence in the hotel. And I'm not saying it was negligent, but perhaps negligence in the hotel in allowing the number of bags to come in and that sort of stuff. Although, frankly, I'm not sure I want hotels counting my baggage. So it may be that if this act protects MGM, it could be that it protects them only on the ground, but not for what they did in their hotel, right? MGM does own both the festival and the hotel, but they own them separately through a, through a complicated corporate structure that I don't fully comprehend. <laughs> okay. Um, so m- many critics are calling out this lawsuit as outrageous, disgraceful, and worse. It, did it shock you that MGM would use this legal maneuver, so to speak? No, I'm not shocked. And, and honestly, I mean... It, it, it maybe seems a little premature to seek a declaratory judgment. On the other hand, they've got 2,500 people who either filed suit and then withdrew it or said they're going to sue them. It makes sense to consolidate these somewhere, and I think that what is likely is that this is all going to be consolidated within one federal courthouse somewhere in the United States, and and, and who knows where that will be. Um, it, you know, it, it may feel shocking. Um, it's a little bit novel, but it, it's it shouldn't be shocking that an entity that faces a lot of liability wants to limit that liability and push that liability to others if they can do so. An MGM spokeswoman said the federal court is an appropriate venue in the best and fastest way to resolve the cases. Will you explain why MGM and most corporations want cases to be tried in federal court and plaintiffs and most victims would rather have it in state court? Well, I think the simple truth of the matter is, and I should add here, too, that I'm a law professor, but I also practice law on the side of plaintiffs. So that's generally where my sympathies lie. But in this case, you know, I'm I'm trying to give it to you as straight as I can. Uh, The truth of the matter is the federal judges in our country are the best uh, are the best judges that we have. And the federal courts are are the most efficient and effective courts that we have. And it's going to help a party to be able to consolidate in one, as I said, in one court or, you know, one set of courts rather than to have to litigate in a number of different states between a, a number of different judges in, in front of whom or who are who are elected or appointed in a variety of different ways. So um, the best judges you can get are in the United States District Court. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Thomas Russell. He's a professor at the Sturm College of Law at the University of Denver. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.